We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. Good morning. A few weeks ago, I was chatting with a Christian from a Muslim background in Central Asia. He told me the story of how his family came to follow Jesus Christ. And the story really began about 80 years ago when the Russian army, the Red Army, invaded Belarusia, Ukraine, and Poland, sort of deja vu, if you like. And Joseph Stalin extracted quarter of a million people from those countries and basically exported them to Siberia, to Central Asia. Many were executed. Many died of famine and disease along the way. And some survived and landed in Siberia and Central Asia. And his family was attributed to this. He told me that within this group, there was a young Ukrainian girl, his grandmother, as it happened. And she, when she landed in this part of Central Asia, she was married off to a Muslim, a Tajik man, a second wife, had 10 children by him, and uh, she had endured excruciating suffering and pain, and yet God used her pain and suffering for his glory because she was a devoted follower of Christ. She was a Ukrainian Orthodox Christian, and she prayed for her 10 children. Well, that seed that was sown actually bore a little bit of fruit because 50 years later, one of her children was in Russia in Moscow in Red Square, and someone gave to her a, tr- a gospel tract, a piece paper with the gospel on it, and she believed it, came back to her Central Asian country, and the rest of her nine brothers and sisters came to believe. The whole family, in fact, came to accept this gospel message. And it could be attributed to the prayers of this Ukrainian grandmother whose pain and suffering had borne such fruit against such odds that the gospel was flourishing. This seed that we are considering today in this our mission conference, this seed. And we may ask ourselves as we look at our own lives as we look at our own situation here in Boston and around the world, does this seed have potency? Does it still have value and relevance today? Think of New England or or the metro area, a lot of very educated people, Uh, there's a lot of wealth, there's a lot of poverty, but there's also perhaps a lot of cynicism. And and, uh, does the gospel still, does this seed really, really have an impact? Does it really cut the ice here? And we may wonder about other parts of the world, particularly traditional, conservative, Islamic nations across the Middle East and Asia, and ask, can can this seed really yield something there that is of life? Or perhaps in totalitarian dictatorships like like mainland China or North Korea, is this gospel, this word, can it, is it still, 
does it still resonate? Does it still have a potency to it? And what I would like us to do this morning is to take a look at the parable of the soils and to consider its narrative in the context of the scriptures, but also in the context of our own lives, individually in us as a congregation, as a church here. And we'll look at it in two sections. First of all, the uh, first nine verses, which is the public version of the parable of the soils. And then secondly, from verses 10 to 12, we'll look at the private interpretation after the disciples ask, they ask for an interpretation of this. So the opening of this parable, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And then it closes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see the framing of this? You see what Jesus is doing? He's summoning his audience, this large surging crowd coming towards him. And he's summoned, summoning them to pay attention. We might say, check this out. We might say, get off your backside and start listening. You might get off your cell phone. Take, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. This is important. A sower, listen up, he frames it. And in so doing, you might have recognized an echo here to some of the prophets in the Old Testament, particularly Jeremiah 5:21, where the prophet says, hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have ears to, eyes to see but see not, ears to hear but hear not. There's this prophetic element throughout this parable that we'll pick up on through the passage. Well, some seed fell along the path, the birds came, devoured it, birds gobbled it all up. Other seeds on rocky soil where it did not have much soil, immediately it sprang up, had no depth of soil, the sun rose, it was scorched, since it had no root, it withered away. No root, no fruit. No root, no fruit. Another echo to the prophets, the prophet Isaiah 5.24, their root will be as rottenness, their blossom will go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Other seed fell on thorns, and thorns grew up and choked it. It yielded no grain. Thorns compete for the nutrients, for the light that would nourish, otherwise nourish those seeds. Yet tragically, it's the thorns that win out. And as a climax, other seed fell on good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30, 60, and 100-fold. It's this vital, growing, dynamic picture of life, of productivity, of abundance. It's reflected in the word order, in the original language. Literally, the earth, the good, where the modifier good comes after the noun to underscore this is good soil and this is what happens with good soil. It produces this astonishing harvest, a hundredfold. A few weeks ago, one of our missionaries, uh, Stuart Foster, Stuart and Cindy, our Bible translators in, in Africa, reminded me of uh, an example of this astonishing harvest of the seed. It was in Egypt, the story of the gospel, the seed of the, the Word of God in Egypt. He reminded me that the director of the Bible Society in Egypt tells the story how a hundred years ago in Egypt, that there, were very, there was very little interest in the Coptic church in Bible instruction or Bible curricula. There were uh, much more interest in liturgy and in a language that very few people understood, but there were some Protestant missionaries, not many, 
and they didn't see much fruit in terms of their ministry, but they did start Bible uh, Sunday school classes and curricula. And gradually, some of the children began to participate in these Sunday school classes, and they went home to their moms and dads, and they would ask questions about what they were learning, the parables perhaps, some of the stories. Well, it sort of was gathering a little bit of momentum, and some leaders within the Coptic church, some business people, doctors, lawyers, got together and said, look, we're really a bit concerned. We're going to lose our Coptic children to these Protestants. We better do something about it. So they started their own Sunday school movement, and they started to teach the scriptures. Well, in 2017, it was a hundred-year celebration of the Coptic Bible school, Sunday school movement, a hundred years later, it turned out that all the bishops, all the priests who'd come up into the church, into the leadership, had been trained, had been educated through this biblical education that they'd been receiving through the Sunday school movement. Really quite an astonishing development over a hundred-year period of the seed of the gospel impacting an entire church. Well, Jesus gives in this parable an interpretation, and it comes after the disciples ask him. There's something in that for us all, to ask Jesus for his interpretation. He gives it privately, not publicly. In fact, most of the time in his parables, if you read through the 40 or so parables, he does not explain his parables. But here he does, and he says in verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. It's a very Jewish way of saying, look, you're not going to grasp this if you simply try to understand it with your IQ, with your intelligence, with your effort. This is a gift from God. This is something only God can reveal to you. Jesus had said in Matthew 16, 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. This is my Father who is in heaven who's revealed it to you. Well, for our context, we might say if we are doing genetic research or engineering or if we're in physics or finance and, and we want to learn, we sort of blood, sweat and tears to get the knowledge, to get the data, to get the research, to create the new paradigm, paradigms, the new fields of knowledge and so on. But it's different with the kingdom of God. It's different. It requires a submission to the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. In fact, a submission, a surrender of the will to Him to be able to reveal that to us. Jesus said in John 7, 17, if anyone's will is to understand, to know God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So it's a matter of the will, not just the brain. The will has to be involved. Well, he says the secret has been revealed to you. And when perhaps we as modern people read secret, we think maybe hocus pocus, we think magic, we think, you know, abracadabra, something like that. It's not, he's not talking about that. It, it's really a technical term for the end of history when God reveals everything. He draws back the curtain. And for the Jews at the time, they were expecting the end of history to come at any moment, that suddenly the world order as they knew it would be upturned. There would be a disruption and everything would be turned upside down. But Jesus is saying the secret of the kingdom of God is to you, is the kingdom is not like that. The kingdom is already at work. It's not yet fulfilled, but it's already at work, even though everything in the world may appear to be going in the wrong direction. The kingdom of God does not operate like that. And those who are outside it, Jews and Gentiles who do not believe, everything is a fog. Everything is cryptic. Everything is enigmatic. Not, it's not clear to them what he is talking about. 
And he says these extraordinary words from Isaiah. He says, so that, in verse 12, they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. If you are listening to the Old Testament, you'll notice how Jesus changes or he adapts the Old Testament here. He switches the order. Isaiah had uh, hearing and seeing, hearing first and then seeing, but he puts seeing first and then hearing. And then we see that uh, he, at the end of that verse, he says, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Whereas in Isaiah, it's lest they should turn and be healed. And so Jesus the Messiah is interpreting the Old Testament in our very eyes. In fact, there's a, a link here to the earlier parable in Mark 3, when the Pharisees had said he was demonic, they criticized, condemned his work, and Jesus said, gave this warning, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness and is guilty of an eternal sin. In other words, in the Old Testament, in in Yahweh was the true king. He'd revealed himself through Isaiah the prophet. Now that true king had arrived in space and time in the form of Jesus Christ as Yahweh in the flesh. And in both cases, God's offer of salvation, his offer of redemption, had been met with perhaps religious language, pious babble, religious spiritual phrases and slogans, but underneath it was a fundamental rejection of this salvation. So Jesus says, so that they may see but not perceive, so that. But how does Isaiah help us understand what Jesus is saying? He says, Isaiah says, keep on hearing but do not understand. Isaiah is instructing Israel, it's a command in the original. He's commanding them, keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on practicing what you're doing. Keep on believing what you're doing. Why? Because in the Old Testament, most people didn't listen to Moses. Most people didn't listen to the prophets. Most people were not listening to Isaiah. And so Isaiah, even though Yahweh had rescued them from 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, rescued them from the kings who attacked them, the nations, the tribal warfare in the promised land, even for all of that, they were still self-confident in their own wisdom, manufacturing idols in their own imaginations, bowing down to them. Despite all their religious language, despite all the spiritual verbiage, they were still being trying to be their own saviors and their own lords. And he says, just keep doing that. Basically, in effect, just keep ignoring my message. Just keep doing what you're doing. Soon enough, you will see. Judgment is just around the corner. In Isaiah 6, 12, he says, until cities lie waste, then you will see. And so Jesus says, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. So. Israel has, has been given a message, and it will harden Israel, sort of counterintuitive to us. And it will harden them not because the message is wrong, not because the mode of the transmission of the message is incorrect, but because the people themselves have hard hearts. Their, their ground is unplowed. They have stubborn wills. They refuse to believe it. And Yahweh knows that they will reject the message even before he gives it. He knows their response. And yet, it is his mercy to give the message through Isaiah, in some ways to encourage Isaiah to know that this truly is God's word. So why does Jesus use this text from Isaiah to preach, to explain to these little group of disciples? It's because he's saying to them, I am the last prophet. I am the messenger of God given the last message to the world. It's through me. And they treated the messenger in the Old Testament like that, and they're doing just the same for me. 
and Isaiah gave the message and they hardened their heart. I will give the message and it will harden their heart. Judgment is coming in 30 or 40 years time. Jerusalem was smashed, kind of like Putin smashing Kherson or parts of the Ukraine. It will be smashed to smithereens. Then they will see. Or then when the final judgment comes, when Jesus returns, judging the living and the dead, then they will see what was true in this message. The Father's final messenger has come. His message will harden the hearts. As one of the early Christians in the, in the Christian tradition said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. This is the impact of this word. It, in, in, in giving condemnation, at the same time, it can bring hope and salvation, but it will also bring judgment. Well, all this sort of came viscerally to me a few weeks ago as I was invited by Jackie Freiberg, one of our members here at Park Street Church who had been a missionary in Afghanistan and Iran and Turkey for many years with her husband, Norm. She invited me to listen to the story of a Iranian Christian, Daniel, who came to Boston a few weeks ago. And in, in his story illustrated to me how against so many odds, this seed of the gospel can produce an astonishing result. He was raised, Daniel was raised in Iran, and he remembers when he was four years old, his, on his grandfather's knee, he held out his finger, and his grandfather got a cigarette lighter and started to burn his finger, and said, hell is like, is a million times hotter than this flame. And he said to his grandson, if you mess up, you will go to hell. And he said, if you mess up, we all in our family will go to hell, when he was four years old. So you can imagine that Daniel did not want to mess up. He wanted to be a good boy. So he became a mullah. He became a trainer of Muslim leaders in Iran. And he believed that if he converted Christians to Islam, that God would be pleased with him. But so happened in his town, he discovered that there was, in fact, a Christian church. He didn't know much about Christianity, and then he thought, well, maybe I need to read a Bible so I can point out all the errors and the mistakes and the corruptions. So he went back to his grandfather and said, do you have a copy of the Bible? And the grandfather said, no, that is a very dangerous book. Well, he was undeterred. He went on the black market. He found a Bible, bought it. And he was someone in his community who was very respected. He was given this sort of honorific title, a living martyr. He had fought in the Iran-Iraq war. He had bullets in his body. And he was a respected mullah in the community, after all. Well, he got the Bible, and then he put a, a handkerchief over it to, so that he wouldn't defile himself by reading it. He opened it up, presumably in private, secretly, and read these verses from John chapter 4. The Father is seeking people to worship him and in spirit and in truth. He threw the Bible down on the floor in disgust. How dare these Christians call God their father? Nobody calls God their father. The prophets don't call him father. Muhammad himself didn't call God his father. Why are they saying these things? He was so angry, and yet underneath that anger, underneath that vehemence, underneath that vitriol, underneath that antagonism towards the Christians, there was this yearning in his heart, in his very soul, to know God as his father. Well, he was pretty vexed about all this, and he decided that he would go to this Christian church, not to convert, but to burn the church down. So he went into the church building, 
And almost immediately, he, well, he felt that if he could burn the church down, maybe that would atone for his sin of reading the Bible. He went into the church, fell to his knees, and he was overtaken by a sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit, of the Father himself embracing, holding him tight. And he sensed the presence of God, fell to his knees, weeping. And then the pastor came up to him and said, started to talk to him and say, can I help you introduce Christ to you? And he sort of looked up and said, I think I've just met him. Well, this was a turning point in his life. The Iranian authorities eventually caught up with him. He was thrown in prison for several years, put in a cell three by six feet, tortured, his bones were broken. At one point, they put him in a coffin, nailed him in for several days. They told him he was going to be executed. Well, in a remarkable twist of events, he was almost miraculously released from prison. He was able to escape Iran, left the country, went to Turkey, and landed in Istanbul. And it so happened in Istanbul was Norman Jackie Freiburg, Park Street missionaries. They welcomed him into their home. They befriended him. And for many years, they have been together in this sort of gospel ministry. Now, the point I want to make is it was against all the odds. This imam became an evangelist. This, against all the odds, this Bible sold on the black market became a seed that now Daniel shares this gift of the gospel to Afghan refugees, to Syrian refugees, to Iranian refugees, to others across the Middle East. God's word still has a potency. Well, as we come to try to conclude our message today, how do we think of this parable of the soils, this seed that maybe still has power today. Two, two ways to reflect. First of all, to listen. To listen. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said at the beginning, listen, listen. Now at one level, you can listen to the scriptures all day long on your playlist, on your podcast, on your, in your car, in your home. and You can listen to it all, all day long and it won't, make, it won't make any impact. Just think of Joseph Stalin. Five years in a seminary in Georgia, meditating, reflecting, memorizing scripture. Even throughout his life, he wrote down in his own personal Bible comments on the scriptures. Joseph Stalin knew the Bible well, and he was one of the great monsters, one of the epic monsters of the 20th century, an epic monster, an epic murderer, an epic liar. The Bible itself, it's not so much listening, it's how we listen. How do we listen to this word? And if you noticed in the text, each soil listens, each soil hears. They all hear, verse 15, 16, and 18. It's a completed action in the original language. It's like a finished act. It's done. They heard it. They heard it. They heard it. But then in verse 20, there's a change. But those who were sown on the good soil and the ones who hear the word accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The change is it changes to the present tense. It changes to an ongoing, continual listening and hearing. This active, attentive listening. So it begs the question for you and for me, how do we listen? Do we listen sort of like a checklist on that check? Is it like, how can I read it quicker? How can I, well, maybe randomly? How do we listen? Is it one and done? Or is it this mulling over? Is this, this probing, this wrestling, this engagement, thicker and deeper, wrestling 
with what it means, what it could mean. What is God's Spirit pointing to us? What is He leading us towards? Are we listening attentively or are we listening carelessly? Because how we listen affects the kind of fruit we produce, the kind of fruit that is, is emanating from our lives, from our words, from our deeds. Is it a kind of fruit that is attractive, that is abundant, that is luscious, that is life-giving? Is it fruit that in our words and deeds encapsulate and, and make concrete the very word of God? Think of the prophet Jeremiah who ate the word of God, whose life, his deeds and words were an identical reflection of incarnating the word of God. How do our lives reflect the word of God? What kind of fruit do we produce? Or do we, is our fruit kind of bland, kind of boring, kind of like cardboard? It's not nutritious. Or maybe it's, maybe it's bitter, maybe it's toxic. I'm sure all of us in this room know of relatives, family, friends, who are very religious people, very engaged in religious activities, churchgoers, religious types, but they're cranky, they're judgmental, overbearing, hypocritical. People who are self-absorbed. Is it possible that there's a lack of self-awareness, a lack of self-knowledge that undermines the potency of this seed in all our lives, a knowledge of what truly motivates us, a knowledge of who really we are, how, what our real personhood is. Others may see it, but we may not want to see it. We may not want to listen to what they want to say. We may not really be willing to go there. How open, how honest, how willing are we, are you, am I, to hear the truth mediated through others, feel the truth deeply resonating from the Scriptures? Deuteronomy 29.16 says, When someone hears the words of the oath, he may bless himself in his mind, thinking, Peace will be mine, even though I follow my stubborn heart. There's a challenge to pray like the psalmist in Psalm 139. See if there be any grievous ways, not in my neighbor, not in my wife, not in my children, but in me. Is there any grievous ways plural, ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, we, we can listen more attentively, more deeply. But secondly, we can sow. Sow more and sow more abundantly. Because the kingdom comes through sowing. The kingdom comes through listening. It doesn't come through manipulation. It doesn't come through clever plans. It doesn't come through missiles and tanks like Putin's annexation of parts of Ukraine. It comes through this almost clumsy, chaotic sowing of the word abundantly. The word sown is the, the source in our individual lives of health, of truth, of meaning and purpose in our individual lives, but also in our society, also in our communities, also in our cities. It's the source of life. Consider the origins of the word for example, in the original civil rights movement that came, emanated out of the church, came out of the African-American church, led through the Reverend Martin Luther King. As one commentator notes, what gave such widely compelling force to King's leadership and oratory was his bedrock conviction that moral law was built into the universe. There was an objective reality that propelled in the original civil rights movement so how can the word sown, how can this abundant sowing of the word 
address the complexities of our world, the complexities of our cities, the complexities of our states? How can it address the complexities of injustices? How can it address the wrestling with meaning and purpose in our world today? How can it address the sense of guilt or of suffering, meaning, without becoming hijacked by other agendas? And how can we sow the word more abundantly over all the earth, over all the world, where the parts of the world have never heard this word sown, or where it hasn't been sown with meaning and purpose? What can we do? What can I do here, living here in Boston? We, we might ask ourselves, I live in Waltham, or I live in Cambridge, or Lexington, or Wellesley, or Quincy, or Braintree. How, does, how do my prayers really make an impact over all the earth? How does my financial giving to missions really make a difference in the equation? How does my learning and becoming informed of what God is doing around this, how does it have a real impact, an enduring, an internal value? We may ask ourselves that question. I ask myself that question. Or as a congregation, as we send our members to sow the seed, ordinary men and women from our congregation with a call on their lives from the Holy Spirit to go, does it really make an impact? Is it really being fruitful? I think of Andrew and Anne May in South Africa conducting restorative justice workshops for prisoners in jails. And I ask myself the question, is that just a drop in the bucket? Or I think of one family from Park Street in Central Asia who are using chatbots online to engage in Muslims across the Islamic world. I say, is that really the most effective way of doing it? Is that really producing a harvest? Or Carolyn Cummings organizing soccer and schooling for children from the slums of Nairobi. And I asked, how many, how many are being missed by this? Or I think of Adrian and Rebecca Tam, or Elise and Zane Kang, trying to start a church in Japan and thinking of how hard that soil is, how indifferent the Japanese mindset and heart really is to the gospel from the Shinto and Buddhist background. Is it really having an impact? Is it really having an effect? And yet, as we look at these things and we consider our own lives, we may feel discouraged. We may feel it's so paltry, it's so minuscule but it's nothing new. God's people in the past have also felt minuscule, diminutive, ineffective. Think of the Old Testament when the second temple was built. They looked at the second temple and they questioned God and said, is it not as nothing in your eyes in Haggai 2.3? But what they didn't realize was that, yes, that second temple was smaller than the first temple. But God was at work in it. God was at work in it, and he gave that promise through Zechariah 4, whoever despises the day of small things shall rejoice. In fact, that little, that smaller temple was connected to the larger temple, the new temple, the real, the eternal temple that God was building through his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah and his kingdom, that that was all connected. They couldn't see it. They were looking through a glass darkly. They needed the ears of faith and the eyes of faith to know that God was going to bring about an amazing harvest, a yield that would blow them away. And so, yes, we continue to sow the word across the earth. We integrate our words, our deeds, our justice, and our mercy. Hopefully, we can learn from the mistakes we've made in the past, from our triumphalism, Western power, 
as we continue to sow the word with mercy, with grace, with tears, through suffering, perhaps excruciating suffering, with humility. You see, Jesus started a movement. He started it in the Middle East, and it went east, it went south, it went north, it went west. He started it not with a bank account, not with a 501c3, not with an institutional privilege. He started it with a group of friends, and it was all centered on this seed, this incorruptible seed that they would cast around the world, that it would bear its fruit in its time. And he left behind this group of friends to continue the process of sowing the seed, this incorruptible seed that we see supremely in the Son of God himself. It's the power that changed the world in the ancient times. In fact, it's the power, the only power even today that can bring lasting hope, that can bring real meaning significance in jobs, in homes, nursing homes, in hospitals, significance, purpose, love. It's the only word that can be real justice, enduring justice. And even to those who've never heard, even for the first time. So let us in this Missions Week continue to ask God to water our seed, to show us how we can sow the seed of the gospel. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this incorruptible seed. Against all odds, you've sown it, even in our own hardened hearts. In the same sun that melts wax, hardens clay, we know in our own lives we can hear it and become hardened. Soften our hearts. Help us to hear the voice of the Spirit, that we may become abundant sowers here in Boston, in our families, in our jobs, in the streets of Boston and communities around, and indeed, even to the very edges of the world, for the greatness and the honor of your name. Amen.